The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Altcoin Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16th, 17th, and 18th, 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Altcoin Super Conference. Just go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today to qualify for super early bird rates, the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacob with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Sergey Nazarov. We're going to be talking about smart contracts and smartcontracts.com. Sergey, how are you doing? Uh, I'm good, Richard. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming. Yeah, so um, yeah, thank you for having me. I think I understand smart contracts a little bit, but they're a very new concept. Can you explain to listeners what a smart contract is, how it works, and then we'll get into uh, your company in particular? Sure. Uh, so our definition of a smart contract is that it's a computable contract that's been made tamper-proof by being run on decentralized infrastructure. And to understand that, you have to first look at what a computable contract is. So a computable contract operates many ad network payment systems, many financial services, backends, and derivatives and securities. It's, it's basically where you take key contractual terms and you turn them into digital state that's machine readable and machine executable. So these computable contracts uh, run a lot of the backend operations in an automated fashion today. Now, a smart contract is a computable contract that's been made tamper-proof. And tamper-proof means that it, it'll run in a way that none of the parties involved can modify its operation. So with a computable contract, the issue comes down to an issue of trust where who is running the contract, right? Whereas with a smart contract, you really don't have that issue. And this added trust in a smart contract executing outside the control of any of the parties involved in the contract allows you to eliminate uh, basically redundancy and eliminate a lot of uh, kind of steps that people use to de-risk themselves because okay. they don't trust other people to execute a contract correctly. But if, if the contract is executed in a way that all the parties trust, it'll be executed properly every time, then, for example, all of those parties might not need to keep uh, a copy of the contract in a different format or, or something like that, right? So mm. kind of, I think that the useful... The useful thing to understand uh, about smart contracts is really that they're a back-end innovation. So a lot of, a lot of times in the Silicon Valley and, and the, the internet startup or web startup uh, or even enterprise startup space, you see a lot of people looking for a new interface, right? You see people looking for kind of a recreation of the browser or a recreation of the mobile experience or the recreation of mobile and social and geographic location. And, and, and really, the thing that, that's happening here is there isn't really a new interface. And that's what's really held people back a lot. But what, what there is here is, is really a back-end innovation for how people trust contracts. And because they trust the contract, they, they, they lo no longer need to 
they, they, they no longer need to invest in many redundant systems. So how can people trust that a contract is, um, I don't know what you call, I guess, not unexecutable, the opposite. It, it will execute no matter what. Is there a term for that? And, you know, what makes these contracts that way? Yeah, I would say the, the term for those types of contracts, uh, it might be a little bit misleading semantically, but the term for the definition of those types of contracts is a smart contract. So that's a contract okay. that's going to execute in a tamper-proof manner. And that tamper-proofness is where you gain the additional trust. So, so, so just as a more detailed example, if you look at the way many banks or insurance, corporate treasuries, or even asset manager backends function, even internally, they have many different departments that all have different copies of the same contract in a digital form, mm. right? Right. And they have those different copies because they don't, they don't even trust the other departments in the bank to execute the, or, or represent the interests of their department according to the contract. And then there's all kinds of kind of mission-critical systems between banks, between asset managers, between insurance companies and reinsurers. And these systems... Um, also restate the, the, the same digital contracts once again. So in, in reality, what, what's, what's going on is that instead of there being a ton of redundant copies in different digital formats between institutions and across uh, departments within, within the, uh, any one institution, you will have a single kind of shared record. And the reason you can have that shared record is because it's trusted by all the departments in each of those institutions. And because, every, because everybody can trust that record, as much or more, usually more than if they were maintaining the record themselves in their own system. So first of all, everyone can have a copy because it'll be on a blockchain and the blockchain uh, is decentralized, meaning that copies of it exist on many, many different computers publicly. And secondly, so I'm getting this right, it can be trusted because the nature of how the blockchain is built, the cryptography, the um, you know proof of work or proof of stake makes it uh, almost impossible mathematically or with computers to alter the blockchain. So those are the two reasons you're saying that uh, makes these contracts more trustable? Well, yes. So those two reasons are key. And what that comes down to is that for a smart contract to exist, you need a tamper-proof state, right? And the tamper-proof state is the blockchain, right? So the blockchain records tamper-proof state. And then the smart contract the smart contract on top of tamper-proof state allows you to also run tamper-proof logic, right? So right. You, you can't really run tamper-proof logic without tamper-proof state. It, it'd be very difficult. It, a lot of times it wouldn't make sense because the contract will have to reference what happened before to see where it is in, in the process of executing its conditions, right? Mm -hmm. So the, yeah, this, the, 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 the innovation of smart contracts comes out of the ability for blockchains to give us tamper-proof state. So what is a, um, this is a really difficult question probably, but what does a smart contract look like? I know it's code, but is each step of it executed and memorialized on a blockchain or are multiple steps enacted in a contract and then it's anchored every so often? You know, how does a smart contract work? Uh, you know, in, in our experience of building these contracts for, for over three years now, it, uh, it really depends on what part of the contract you want to make tamper-proof. So what, what usually happens is as you, as you put more of the contractual terms into a smart contract uh, scripting language, it becomes more complex. That costs more. That creates issues with security. Um, and so the kind of prevailing wisdom around these things is that you, you want to put only the key parts that you really want to be tamper-proof. 
partly due to scalability issues, partly due to cost issues of actually running smart uh, smart contract scripts in in Bitcoin or Ethereum or or some some other uh, network. So in in the future, I mean, the, the the interesting question for me is kind of in the future, how will it look? Right? Will huge entire contracts be represented as smart contract scripts in in the network? Right. Well, can you tell me now a couple of examples? You know, let's pick one real simple one, and then one that's a little bit more complex. And what would we use a smart contract for? You know, two examples, easy and hard. Yeah, sure. So I think the examples that, that are simpler to understand, they don't really have uh, as many as many actors. So let's take some kind of uh, derivative, right? And you have a, a derivative event that'll create a payout to a specific party at a specific rate, right? Now, All right. to execute that derivative today in a secure, trusted manner, you will need uh, a lot of infrastructure, right? You will need to, to go to a bank. You will need uh, to get all kinds of documentation. You'll need to contract with your counterparty. You'll need to get a settlement clearing facility. You'll, you'll need to do a lot of stuff, Right. And all the people involved in this, the bank, the, the, your counterparty, which might be another hedge fund or another person who's interested in, in some kind of outcome that they want to get paid for, they will have to maintain records of all this stuff as well, right? And then you're, you're going to have to have regulators get access to these records, right? So you, you, you basically have a lot of complexity in terms of how you're going to execute a very simple kind of payment from a derivative event, right? Like something as simple even as a as an escrow release or something like that, right? Whereas here, what you have is you have smart contract code that both parties, possibly even without a bank, can can look at and see very clearly, okay, if this weather event happens, or if a price of something reaches this, or if something else happens, then I get paid this. And if it happens in a different format, if it happens at a different price, you get that, right? Okay. And all the assurances that they would have had to go through and the high cost fees that they would have had to pay all kinds of technology providers basically go away because all those fees and, and all those systems were in place to assure them and to make it clear that if, if something were to happen, then they would get paid, right? All right. So if, so if you have a very- smart contract is, is acting like a uh, executor of instructions that both parties give in a contract and- also, somewhat as a controller of escrow, if that's involved. Uh, yeah, I, in, our, in our experience, much of the time, most most financial contracts or most contracts have a financial nature, and therefore they're kind of completed once payment occurs, right? So there's right. there's really two dimensions to smart contracts. Usually, there's what is the objective proof of performance, and then what is what is the concluding event? So, what is, is it a payment event? Did that payment event happen? If yes, then the contract's complete. So the, the simpler example is, is along the lines of, of, of basic, basic securities like derivatives or some of these other ones where it, even making things like this isn't, isn't really accessible unless you have a budget of a few hundred thousand dollars today, right? right? And if you have something that more and more people are calling the internet of contracts, then you don't have that limitation anymore, right? You can now make all kinds of financial agreements because all the high costs around creating reliability of the existing financial products have now been abstracted away, right? They've, they've been simplified away 
because you have, you have a method of doing them that's so secure by default and so trustworthy by default that you don't need to incur additional costs to be assured that it'll work, right? You don't need to pay somebody $100,000 at some facility and you don't need to, to spend a ton, of, a ton of time and energy on, on setting up all kinds of legal edge cases if the contract itself can determine performance, right? All right. Gotcha. What about a contract that um, you set up, but the parties weren't careful enough and it executes and has an unintended consequence and people want to stop it or undo it and it could cause harm? Is that a other side of the coin, double-edged sword element to this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what we're really talking about with you, Richard, is, is about making contracts deterministic, right? So not... A- so they're going to be less probabilistic and they're going to be more deterministic, right? If I do some kind of financial agreement with somebody, there's always a probability that they won't pay, right? Or that's something that they'll run away or that uh, they'll refuse to do something, right? And so there's a yep. probabilistic dimension to that. And what we're talking about is saying is basically saying, okay, we're going to make things much more deterministic, right? We're going to make things near 100% surety that if the container arrives by this date and is cleared by customs according to the container clearing API from customs, then you will be paid, right? Because that level of determinism is, 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 is important to one party or two parties in the contract. Now, the downside of that is what you mentioned. And the, the way you can solve the downside of that is you implement multi-signature schemes into the contract. So what you do is, is you create smart contract code that says, Okay, if this, if these people sign off on saying that uh, I should stop functioning or that I should send another message somewhere that says, you know, cancel my payment or something like that, then you you can have a multi-signature scheme that that people kind of enact when there's a problem. All right. What about if there's a problem with the contract? The deal is set up, and you know, someone misbehaves in a way that wasn't anticipated. And it has to go to arbitration or it has to go through the legal system. Is there a, uh, a mechanism that's going to be built into smart contracts that allows the legal system to get involved and have a master key if needs be? A judge that will decide, well, even though this was a contract, there was, you know, performance issues, got to go to trial, and we're going to have it go this way instead. Yeah. So, Richard, I, I think the issue, the issue there that you're defining is legally binding contractual state, right? And this is a common, well, a less and less common, but it was a more common rebuttal to smart contracts, right? In, in that it's not as legally binding because there isn't as much common law precedent. Now, in reality, that's obviously going to ha- happen, and that's obviously going to be resolved. The way you can incrementally solve that issue is you can reference the smart contract as the as the legally binding method of defining contractual state in your legal document, right? You can say whatever the smart contract says is the outcome. You can also add clauses that say things like in the situation where smart contracts don't work, then we have to go to arbitration or something like that. But but that gets gets more and more convoluted. Uh, Eventually, once there's enough money rolling around in smart contracts, and once there's enough kind of reason to go into real cases and to try it out in real cases in, 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 in higher and higher courts, you will eventually have judges that can look at smart contract code and, and, and it will be explained to them that kind of 
your private key assigned to your identity signed off on this. Our legal document says that what is defined here is our agreement. In, in many cases, that already exists in reality. Like there's standards like FPML and there's, there's standards that define the digital state of a computable contract. And those, right. that state is defined in the legal document. So there's really nothing new to how to solve this problem. That's great. That's good to know. It makes it less ugly and less scary, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think this, a part of the scariness right now for people, well, less and less in the past more, but now less and less, is that they didn't understand what would happen in kind of certain legal scenarios. But, you know, there's top tier legal firms that have clients that want to know about this. And so they, they've come along and they've started making clauses that they put into contracts for derivatives and for all kinds of other things. So it's not, um, I mean, it's a completely solvable problem. It's not, as far as I'm concerned, it is, it's a problem that's going to be solved sooner or later, no matter what, common law through, through a case that'll try smart contract state as being legally binding then the judge will rule and you'll have common law precedent for how to evaluate our contract state, right? Well, how are you going to take, um, you know, contracts have clauses. Right now, people write them up. And even if they're, stand, you know, if they're standardized clauses, wonderful. But, you know, how do you translate a given clause in a contract into smart contract language? What programming languages are being used? And, you know, will there be a very simple interface to turn... Um, you know, my intention that I write down for a contract into the actual programming elements or language. Who's going to do this translating? So in, in, in our experience, it's really the ability to have the contract acquire data that proves performance, right? That, that's the point at which, in, in, in our experience, the efficiency of, of smart contracts starts to take place. If you have a contract that says, you know, Joe is going to paint my house blue, it's going to be very difficult to prove that in any data-driven format, right? That's a very subjective measure of did he paint it blue? Did he paint it blue enough? Did he paint the windows blue or not? So the, the, the reality is that smart contracts will work primarily for contracts that can be resolved automatically using data. And the way the world looks now is that there's going to be more and more data, right? So there's more and more IoT data, for example, for insurance smart contract. You have an insurance smart contract that says your magnetic lock in your warehouse has to be locked over the weekend. If it isn't locked and you have a burglary during that time, then you know the policy only covers whatever it covers, right? And the difference between yeah, now um, and... You, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, sir. I guess just to really answer your question, what I would say is that it won't be every single clause, right? It won't be the very qualitatively evaluated clauses. It'll be the clauses... This will be very useful. This is very useful in contract scenarios where 90%, 80% of the contract can be resolved by a data feed like a market price or by a data feed about somebody delivering something or a data feed about some other outcome, right? Or perhaps the data might be that there was an ownership transfer. You know, somebody sent a token to somebody and that was the, what, what the contract was about. But, but at the end of the day, I don't think you're going to model a lot of qualitative things. Like, uh, you know, well, it still seems like there's going to be a, a desire for that. You know, how about real estate, commercial leases, residential leases? There's clauses that are common to them. Someone's going to want to come along and say, hey, we specialize in smart contracts for real estate. So they're going to have to code up all these standard type things, leases, commercial leases, you know, purchases, sales, all that kind of stuff. So that, you know, I'm sure that we have programmers that do this and there'll be standard contracts out there that do this. and then 
there'll probably be modules that you can tweak um, to add on to them. I, I would guess that this will turn into a whole ecosystem and there'll be specialist programmers for different industries and different use cases of smart contracts. Well, yeah, yeah, that's already happening. We, we know it's programmers specializing. We know smart contract developers uh, specializing in the insurance industry, the trade finance industry, in derivatives. Um, more and more people are, are working on tokens and coins just because that's the, the interesting topic right now. I mean, I, I definitely think there's going to be vertical specialization. But I, I, I think that the point that I was trying to make was around the, the way that you would model out clause in a contract that's subjectively evaluated, right? Like if, if we modeled out a smart contract that said, I, I, I paint your house blue, right? The only way that that smart contract is completed is if you know, I sign off that I painted the house and you sign off that I painted the house, right? But that, that doesn't really provide very much value, okay. in my opinion. What, what provides value is we have some kind of complicated insurance agreement or trade finance agreement or derivatives agreement. And today what people do is people open up a browser and they look through their eyeballs at the data feed. And then they go to another window and they pump something in there. And then th that gets sent somewhere in the back end. And it executes something that somebody else has to stop and look at that then they turn to another window, pump something in there, and then send that off somewhere else, right? right? Like the elimination of that workflow as far as the smart contract just looks at the data feed, sees what it should see, then the smart contract pays the appropriate person. And that's it. And, and everybody can see that. Both parties can see it. Regulators can see that that's happened. Um, people who do risk analysis at uh, places like Standard & Poor's can see that, right? So that's, that's really the, the situation in which I think there's a lot of value to be had. Okay. And what's your focus at your company? What, which area of the ecosystem? It sounds like this is the area, the financial side. What kind of smart contracts are you creating? And, uh, you know, what is, what is the company primarily focused on? So we, I mean, we've been building smart contracts for, for over three years now, and we've had experience in a lot of different industries. And when we started the company, the, the focus of our smart contracts was back from 2014. The focus was always on how do we get a smart contract to acquire objective proof from the outside world, right? How do we get a smart contract to know that a ship has arrived at port to know that, that an insurance policy condition was met, to know that a market price has changed and somebody should be paid. So it, it was always about how do you get smart contracts able to talk to the external world? And then it became how do you get smart contracts to pay in whatever method uh, end users want to have? As we started executing on that, what, what we basically learned er, early on was that it turns out that smart contracts, they can't really talk to data feed. So a smart contract, whether it's on a uh, a Bitcoin network or a derivation of Bitcoin, or whether it's on Ethereum or Hyperledger, uh, whatever network it's on, if it's a tamper-proof smart contract, it cannot on its own talk to a data feed. So smart contracts in and of themselves cannot, cannot acquire the data they need, and they cannot send any messages outside of their network. This is basically because uh, th there is no access point through which they can talk to these other data, to these other resources. And this is really the problem that basically for the, over three years now, we've been working on. And when we've been working on solving in terms of allowing a smart contract on, on various networks, Bitcoin, Ethereum, others, to be able to talk to external data. So, so really what, what our company does is it, it enables 
smart contract developers to make externally aware smart contracts in a way that they wouldn't mm-hmm. wouldn't be able to without us. So the the dilemma right now for a smart contract developer is okay, if I actually want to build a smart contract that talks to a data feed, I need to sit and I need to code blockchain middleware. I need to write some middleware that sits between the data feed and my contract. And then I need to run that middleware, right? Or I need to get some third-party service to run the middleware. But the issue there is that if you have this tamper-proof contract in the middle, right, you want all the triggers and all the outputs to be tamper-proof as well, right? You want to have the smart contract retain an average tamper-proofness. And we have kind of been looking at this problem for years now because we started out wanting to build smart contracts that mimic real-world agreements that could acquire proof from data feeds. Whereas, so yeah. I, I guess the thing that, that, that I would say is that it, it's really this blockchain middleware problem that we're focused on solving because we, we're pretty sure that about anywhere from 80 to 90% of all the smart contracts out there are going to need to be able to talk to data feeds. And if they can't do that in a secure manner, then the average tamper-proofness of the, of the smart contract as an end-to-end setup gets much lower, right? Like if, if you have a smart contract okay. where, where the core of it is very tamper-proof, but you have some kind of home-baked blockchain middleware, you have some code sitting between the contract and a data feed, it's really that blockchain middleware, that code, that's, that's the attack vector, right? If you wanted to influence that smart contract in the middle, you would go after the security at the edges, right? And okay, it's, right. it's really this problem that we solve with our, our product called Chainlink. So what Chainlink allows, allows you to do, it's an open source, community-driven product uh, that basically allows data providers or payments providers to run, to run something called an oracle. Now, an, an oracle, an oracle is, is a, basically a computer science term that, that means something that gives an input into a system that the system cannot acquire on its own. So when, when uh, our data provider partners and payment processors and other people run their own chain link, they have an interface that a smart contract can talk to and can securely request data from or secu- securely request payments from, right? Okay. And it's, it's this kind of secure connectivity between smart contracts and the external resources that they need to function properly that our company is focused on. What happens if um, you get all this working, standardize it all, um, you know, certain entities are using the smart contract over and over and over again. Now a hacker comes along, takes all the code, modifies it slightly so that let's say the end payment goes to a wallet that the hacker controls and they run this on the system. How would you be, you know, is there a way for you to identify that um, a smart contract's code has been changed? And to prevent hacks like this, the modifications of the code? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a few few ways. So the, the one thing is that our goal is not to be a, a centralized Oracle provider. We, we don't want to be a provider through which all the data and all the payment instructions flow to and from smart contracts, right? Because eventually the aggregate value of the contract through any one provider would become too large. And that provider would not, would not be secured once the value became large enough. So, I mean, the first approach that we have to this is uh, we apply the logic of our space, right? We apply the logic of security through redundancy. 
often called decentralization, and we kind of decentralize this Oracle mechanism, which means that you could have multiple Oracle operators. You could have multiple chain link operators giving you the same data, either from the same data feed or from different data feeds. So that's one approach, right? And if one of them consistently doesn't provide the correct data, then you know there's a, there's a misbehavior detection mechanism and there's a level of consensus around the chain link operators that, that basically puts, uh, puts that guy out of the system or, or greatly reduces his reputation or makes him lose the and makes him lose the deposit. The, the other okay. approach is uh, some interesting work that we've done uh, together with Ari Jewel and the folks at IC3 at Cornell uh, on something called Town Crier. And Town Crier is an interesting imp- implementation of Intel uh, SGX technology, where together w- with, uh, with the Town Crier folks, we recently partnership launched, launched that on production. And what that allows is that allows data to, that allows the, the Oracle middleware to run in an Intel SGX instance. And that Intel SGX instance is considered tamper-proof, such that even the operator of that Intel SGX server cannot modify the code in the server, mm. even if somebody has complete access to it. It's, uh, it's, it's basically a version of a tested host. And this kind of security through, through Intel SGX model is, is something we're working on and moving forward. Uh, it depends on Intel SGX servers being made available, uh, which I think okay. is, is progressing. So, so there's really these two approaches. One approach is you create uh, an Oracle network, which is something that Chainlink allows, something we've been doing for a while. And the other approach is you use basically the best practices for securing smart contract code, well, not smart contract code, for securing off-chain code that sends data to smart contracts. Which is uh, today Intel SGX. So, what do you see as the uh, as the near and the near term future, and then you know near term meaning six months, a year, long term. It's not really long term, but in this universe, long term, two, three, four years. What's going to happen with smart contracts, and what's going to be your your company's role? Well, with smart contracts, I think it, it makes sense to begin there because our company's role is really enabling smart contracts to do more. It's enabling them to function relative to the outside world. And uh, another piece of what we do actually is, so one of our customers is Swift, and we're, we're working with them on, on the, the ability for smart contracts to be able to be kind of triggered by Swift messages. And there's other standards, like FPML and other standards, where we want to make it easy for existing systems to be able to use smart contracts without having to throw out the existing kind of accounting system or whatever it is they have internally. Just because Many of those won't be thrown out for, for years, probably decades. But, but to get back to smart contracts, I, I think what's going what's gonna to happen with smart contracts is, I mean, there's going to be a lot of grass, grassroots adoption. You see a lot of grassroots adoption right now. You see a lot of volume coming from that. The quality of the people in the grassroots adoption movement for smart contracts is just going to increase and increase pretty rapidly. And then it's going to get to a point where the numbers there are attractive enough for large institutions. And at the same time, the legal risk and the risk around legally binding contractual state will be low enough. And uh, when those two kind of curves intersect of, of large enough upside from the volume in these networks to low enough risk from a legal contractual perspective, uh, large institutions with uh, tens, hundreds of billions of dollars are, are going are gonna to start using this infrastructure in one form or another. Uh, the question people have right now is, is whether that's going to be a public version of this infrastructure, whether it's going to be a private version of this infrastructure. Um, 
like a private version that's been made a legal monopoly because it's been regulated as as the de facto standard for certain transactions. Like those are the open questions. There's, there's basically no question that blockchain-based infrastructure is going to power the vast majority of, of financial transactions over the next 10 years, right? In the next six months, right. it'll be the grassroots movement. Um, in the next year, two or three years, uh, the grassroots movement will continue to increase the quality of its offering uh, until the larger financial institutions finally go all in, at which point regulators will, will have to go in. And when regulators go in and, and, and make clear binding regulation, it's going to, it's going to be the biggest, benefit, the biggest beneficiary of this, indeed, maybe the regulators, simply because the, the problem they consistently have is that they don't know what's going on in the market because they can't access data, right? They cannot acquire, they're, they're not an IT firm. They don't want to deal with the 800 different formats and standards that people have come up with for financial transactions, right? Right. So I, I, I think in the long term, this is, this is a, a huge win for the regulators. And therefore, it's a huge win for society because regulators, they soften financial bubbles, right? They soften corrections. Mm-hmm. And so at, at the end of the day, what I think this looks like in, in 10, 15, 20 years is that regulators have created a, a single standard in terms of both how you formalize financial contracts in certain, in certain verticals certain asset classes, and also where you put that data, right? So the, before they could, they, they could regulate into existence what the data formatting standard would be, now they can regulate into existence what the format will be and where, where it's going to run. Like what, okay. what is the network? Who runs the network? What, what does it mean to run a node? If you participate in the U.S. treasuries market up to the volume of $100 million, you need to run a full node, right? That is your cost for being a participant in this market. Here's how you run a full note. So I think, I think that's, that's absolutely the terminal conclusion because this is, this is inescapably what makes regulators be able to stop having to be IT firms and allows them to start kind of very easily having a lot of transparency. And the simple fact that they have the transparency will eliminate a lot of bad behavior and will soften a lot of, um, soften a lot of dynamics that, that are really not good dynamics. That, that at the end of the day, okay. the, the average man suffers from most, and, uh, and right. that we, we, as like reasonable people, all want to go away. Um, in terms of our company, I mean, our company is very tied to the growth smart contract usage because we enable the smart contracts on various networks. Uh, right now, Bitcoin and Ethereum. For example, we have Ethereum contracts paying in Bitcoin. Uh, our, our role will really be enabling contracts to have access to all the resources they need. So the, the goal of our company is that if you're a smart contract developer and you need a data feed, you should be able to, to, to show up to a contract that represents that data feed on chain. Mm. You shouldn't need to go figure out an API. You shouldn't need to go build blockchain middleware. You should just be able to ask something on chain for the data you need. If you want to send a payment to a bank in Guatemala, Great. You have an on-chain contract that lets you do that. You as a developer, all you got to do, you got to have your contract, send a transaction to that contract. Payment will happen through something like the SWIFT network. It'll return a confirmation. The confirmation will be put back into your smart contract, completing it. So our goal consistently is to just make sure that smart contracts have the data they need and the payments they need. Well, they have all the resources, right? So if 
if, if you want an e-signature solution to be able to sign off on a smart contract, it sh- there should be a very easy way for the e-signature provider that you want to use to be able to offer that to your smart contract, right? right. And the way he offers that is he takes his APIs, he wraps the chain link around it in a week, in a week and a half max, and your contract can now use his service. Be- because we're, because we're blockchain agnostic, we are able to also kind of do a lot of cross-chain things. And eventually, as, as smart contract data and smart contract payments and smart contract relevant resources go on-chain, we're also going to have very good mechanisms for connecting contracts across chain. But like I said, we, we already have contracts on other chains paying in Bitcoin. And in fact, one of the right. first things we built year, years ago was basically a, bit, a service where you could release a Bitcoin transaction based on uh, an arbitrary data. All right. Well, yeah, we, we, we're kind of out of time to get into all this. But um, the last question I would ask you is, how can we let listeners know how to find out more information about what you're doing and start getting involved with you and um, maybe contract with you for smart contracts for their use case? I mean, they, they can find us on smartcontract.com. Uh, if, they're, mm-hmm. if they're a smart contract developer and they're building a use case where they need data to get to the contract, where they need the contract to pay a bank account or to pay in some other blockchain or some other system, then you know, we want to hear from them. We want to help them be able to build the use case that they're an expert in. So, I mean, really, they should just go to smartcontract.com. If, if they want to help building smart contracts themselves, I mean, they can contact us, uh, us as well, and, and we can recommend some, some folks that they might want to work with. But we, okay. we primarily focus on the creation of, uh, well, we, we, we focus on helping smart contracts do more than move tokens around, right? Mm-hmm. So right. that's kind of re- really, really the focus. And that's, yeah, so we're, we're, we're very excited to see use cases in insurance, in securities, in all, all kinds of use cases where you need your smart contract to do something more than move a token. Like you need it to get an interest rate, or you need it to know the location of a ship, or you need it to know whether the, the lock in the door was locked, you know, so on and so on. Mm. All right. Last question. In, in the future, do you think um, when we exchange business cards, you'll say, I'll have my smart contract contact your smart contract? Um, That's just a joke. It's just a joke. Uh, I don't, very, uh, very I don't know. Like, there's things with people talk about doing AI and uh, you know things like that. I'm not I'm not an expert in that, but it's entirely possible we'll all be living in the matrix soon. So you know who knows. No problem. I I guess it's not good to end with a bad joke, but that's how I end it. But uh, I appreciate you coming, Sergey. It's been an interesting interview, and this is just it's an area that's so difficult. You know, so few people can understand or explain what's happening, at least that I've interviewed. So I, I really appreciate you uh, making it clear for everyone. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hope I hope it's helpful. I hope it's been somewhat clear. Uh, I have a tendency to babble on, but uh, you know, if you have questions or if there's any anything else we can answer about uh, what we're doing or, or how smart contracts work, folks should feel free to contact us, and we're we're always glad to help. The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Altcoin Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16th, 17th, and 18th, 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Altcoin Super Conference, 
Just go to bitcoinsuperconference.com and register today to qualify for super early bird rates, the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's bitcoinsuperconference.com. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.